0: stand together for worship i search the world
1: My name is McLean Murphy, and I'm on the staff in the session here at First Pres. And I'm so glad y'all are here on this beautiful June morning. For those of you online, thanks for joining us. I was thinking this morning about uh, the idea of rhythm and the invitation that God invites us into a rhythm of life with him. Uh, The days are in a rhythm. The weeks are in a rhythm. Even this season of summer falls in the rhythm of all of the seasons, and that we kind of get used to it. And how I believe that one of the most integral parts of our life of rhythm is the idea of worship. That God created us for worship. That God stirs our hearts towards worship. That we look at the natural beauty of this world and are drawn into just this awe and wonder of who Jesus is. And so that on Sunday mornings, a part of that rhythm of worship is getting to do it together as a family. So I'm just glad to be together this morning um, to worship King Jesus And with these songs and with this message and all that he does in our lives. Please pray with me. God, thank you for your invitation into a rhythm of life with you. There is, Jesus, this temptation in our hearts to resist that rhythm and to try to do life on our own. But God, it's so much better when we do it with you. Things always disappoint us and life always falls short when we try to do it on our own. But Jesus, when we say yes to you and your invitation, to live life in relationship with you. God, we're just reminded that life with you is so much better. God, we lift up people who are on our hearts and minds this morning. We think of our friend Mike Cantor, who has been in the hospital, and we just pray for continued healing on him. Lord, we lift up Chanley Lee and her family and the loss of her brother. God, that you would just surround this family with your love and with your strength. God, we also um, lift up the family and the death of Nell Rohrbeck, my grandmother, um, my dad's mom. So for my dad, Kurt Rohrbeck, and my aunts and uncles, Robert Rohrbeck and Jan Dees, thank you for her and her 96 beautiful years here on earth and that she's with you in heaven now, Jesus. And um, just thank you for her life and thank you for um, this family of faith and her family of faith at St. Andrews. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Also wanted, if you are new, we would love to meet you and to get to know you. And the easiest way that you can do that is by filling out a Connect card, either online or at the Welcome Tent. Thanks.
2: Good morning. God's generosity toward us is always personal. That's why Kristen Connor launched a ministry in our church of women mentoring and discipling younger women in life and faith by building relationships of trust. And for the 14 mentors and mentees, it has been transformational. So I want you to hear personally from Julianne Hendrickson describing her experience of being mentored by Elizabeth Kristen.
3: Good morning, my name is Jillian Hendrickson and I'm part of the mentor program here at First Press. Um, when I first was told I was going to have a mentor, I was excited, but I was also nervous that um, having someone older as a mentor would not feel valuable for, for her. I was worried that I would get plenty of value, but that I wouldn't be able to give back value to her. Um, I was matched with Elizabeth Kristen, and um, if those of you who don't know Elizabeth. Um, is a woman business owner in the insurance industry, and she is awesome. She's just very similar to me. We have a very similar style of communication. Um, We have a similar outlook on life, and I feel that we just connected instantly, which was amazing. Um, It's hard to find someone who's kind of been in your shoes and knows what you're going through, and um, Elizabeth is able to connect with me on that level. Um, We're able to meet and have coffee and enjoy each other on both a personal and a professional level. Um, I just, we've only met two or three times at this point and I just know that I've found someone who will answer my text messages when I need help with a lease agreement for an office space, um, whether I need help with my children or a question about my marriage. Um, I truly feel that Elizabeth is a great sounding board for me, and I'm looking forward to many more months and possibly years of friendship with her.
2: You heard it, Elizabeth. <laughs> because of God's generosity in your life, Elizabeth, we know that that's why you're giving back to God by investing so generously in Julianne's life. Friends, here are five ways that you can express your generosity and help us continue to grow this ministry. Or you can use the generosity box in the back of the room, but be assured of this. God is so pleased when you and I give back to him by being generous with others.
0: Friends, as McLean mentioned What a gift it is for us to be able to worship and gather together. And this morning, we are so excited to introduce a new song to you that is inspired from the book of Genesis. And it highlights the story of Abraham, who at the age of 99 was childless but was gifted a son, Isaac. And later in this story, the Lord instructs and tests Abraham to give his son as an offering, as a sacrifice to him. And as Abraham goes forth in obedience and prepares himself, prepares to gather the wood, the Lord does not intervene, does not make his presence known. But Abraham believes that the Lord loves him and his son and that he will provide some way, somehow. And as Abraham and Isaac make this journey to this site where he's going to sacrifice his son, the Lord still does not intervene. And Isaac carrying the kindling wood that he's about to unknowingly be sacrificed on, noticed, hey, there's there's no sacrificial lamb. And, and dad, where's, where's the lamb? And Abraham's response is, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. But Abraham got to the site with Isaac. He built this altar and the Lord still did not intervene, but he was at work. He bound his son, Isaac, and placed him on the altar, and it was not until Abraham grabbed his knife, about to strike his son, that the Lord, in his perfect timing, brought an angel of the Lord, and stopped Abraham, and off to the distance was a ram that the Lord provided to take Isaac's place, and friends, what a beautiful image that is of what Jesus was to us, to taking our place as sacrifice for our sins but it's also a story of encouragement that though at times we may not feel or sense the presence of the lord that he is at work in our lives and if he cares for the sparrows how much more does he care and love us and that's what this song is about that he can be our source that we can can conf- find contentment in him because he is all that we need so i invite you to stand and to sing with us, or just soak in his presence and close your eyes, do what you feel, and allow the Lord to speak and encourage you. be more loved than I am right now. I wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I can do to let you down.
4: It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud.
0: I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Going through
4: Já
5: catch all those words there on the screen just now, huh? Pride, intrigue, violence, rebellion, then a surprise word, providence, and then a surprise, surprise word, Esther. I got 20 bucks that says not a person in this room has ever used those six words in a complete sentence. (laughs) Uh, There's some other words that have to do with this book called Esther. Esther. Maniacal genocide plot, gore, drunken stupidity, harem, and you're thinking I'm going to talk about something other than the Bible, aren't you? No, this is the book in the Bible. The title of it is Esther. You may have never read Esther, and Esther is in the Bible, and we're going to talk about Esther this week and for, for three more, and here's another really, really odd thing about this book. God is never mentioned once, doesn't exist. The word we just sang, Jirah, provider, it's not in there, nothing. And the question we're going to ask is, why is this book in the Bible, and what are we supposed to do with it? What are you and I supposed to do with this book that, that helps us understand our own lives, not much less the life of the people of Israel? So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to realize that God is at work whether we sense it or not. God is doing things in the world, in the history of Israel, in the history of salvation and in your life and in my life, in the family of faith that we're a part of, God is at work. And oftentimes for some for people, we have no concept of how God is at work and we don't sense God's presence. It's gonna be the case for these people. I'm gonna I think you're gonna sense perhaps you can relate to this. So just to make sure we understand what's going on in the book. We're going to have to do a little world history. Now, if world history, when I was taking it, I hated it. I loathed it, but we never got to talk about things like harems and gore and drunken stupidity in world history. It was, it was nightmaringly boring, and the books were terrible, but this is kind of an exciting book. And we're going to get little snippets of some of those fancy words I just rattled off this morning. Again, remembering that the whole point is, how are we going to know what God is up to? And is God keeping his promises? So, a review if I could, world history of the, of the people of Israel, okay? The year is 587 before Jesus, B.C., right? And the, the nation of Israel, they're in around Jerusalem, the same Jerusalem that's there today, the nation of Israel is attacked by people from what you and I know as modern-day Iraq. They were Babylonians. They come over there, they crush them. Now, here's what's really important to understand. They destroyed the city and particularly the temple. Now, the temple was their center of their religious and national identity as a religious people following the almighty God of the universe and as a country. It was the center of things. The Babylonians completely destroyed it. And then here's what else they did. The Babylonians hauled the leaders, the business owners, the intelligentsia, the wealthy people and hauled them all the way back to, uh, to Baghdad for, all, for, for you and me so we can see modern maps. They took them there. The word we use is exile. The people of Israel were in exile. And when we're far from God, you and I are in exile. It's a powerful, powerful way to begin to understand this book. Now, let me see if I can't paint the picture of what that would mean for them. Religious and national identity. What if Hitler had won the war in Europe? What if Hitler had won, and what if he had come successfully and occupied the United States? And what if he had gone through Washington, D.C., burned down the White House, completely destroyed the United States Capitol, taken out the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, and just leveled it all? And what if it then hauled off all of the leaders, the business owners, etc., back to Berlin. That's what these people are experiencing. They're grieving. They're distraught. They're hopeless. They're hundreds of miles from home. And there's nothing in their experience that's saying we're ever going to get back there again. And they're doing their best. But they hate it. They hate it. And you would hate it, and I would hate it. And here's the question that they would, were asking that you and I want to ask. Did God bail on his promise to make us, Israel, a big, huge, gigantic family. Because you may, you may not remember the promise. In the book of Genesis, chapter 12, God says to this man, Abraham, the one we just heard about with Jaira song. that Abraham says, Abraham, I just picked you. It's not, nothing to do with you, and through you, I'm going to make a big, huge family. And with that big, huge family, I'm going to bless every single person on the planet And the way we say it around here is real relationships, real transformation. I'm going to have a relationship with them. They're going to be connected to me. They're going to be transformed. And we're going to have a big, huge family of people who are in the covenant with me. That's what God promised. Looks like God bailed out. Because the story of Esther is 100 years later. Go to 480, give or take. That's how long they've been over there in Baghdad or wherever. The city is actually called Susa. Look it up. It's still there. The the ruins are still there, S-U-S-A. God, did you decide not to keep your promise? Did you renege? Are we still your people? Those are really good questions. Those are the kind of questions they were asking. And You may have felt that at some point in your own experience. They certainly did. I don't know how you could feel any different. So the book of Esther shows up in our Bible. And the Bible is one book and it's one story and it points us to Jesus. But here is a story with all of those cool words I just said a little while ago and no mention ever of God. And I think what that means is we're being teased into asking the question, can I see God at work even though he appears to be conspicuously absent in the history of Israel and also in my life? Now, we know how the story ends. If you haven't read Esther, you're going to have to come back to get the full story unless you go read it yourself on your own. It's 10 chapters. It'll take you a while to read. It's It's a great story, especially with all those cool things going on. You're going to have to come back in here because we're going to on purpose not solve the thing for you this morning. Just trying to bait you and tee up a little bit because you're going to want to know about a, a genocidal maniac now, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I have your t- And harem? Oh, who doesn't want to know what that's all about? So here's, here's what we're going to do. Just a couple of people who you need to know about in the book of Esther. And then we're going to take a, a look at a little bit of what's going on in the book. The first thing is this king who is the king of the land, modern-day Iraq. It's called Persia at the time. His name is Xerxes, or if you look in the the text of the Bible, his name is Ahasuerus. I know that was hard for me to say, Ahasuerus. The reason I can say it is because I learned the Hebrew, biblical Hebrew language studying the book of Esther. So it says Ahasuerus in there. That's who the king is. The king has a queen, a wife. Her name is Vashti. Okay, that's two people. The third person we need to make sure we know about is Mordecai. Mordecai is one of the cast-out Jewish people, one of the exiled Jews. The Persian king of Xerxes, Queen Vashti, then a Jewish man named Mordecai. He's a part of this minority that's been exiled there 100 years later. He has a niece. Her name is Esther. How many people here have ever used the name Esther? It's not a name we see anymore, but here she is, Esther. And then there's a fifth person. He's the man plotting genocide. He's the precursor to Adolf Hitler. His name is Haman. These five people are going to be interacting to sort of help us get from where we are as a people who are in exile to is God going to do anything about it? That's what's happening here. Is God going to allow the people of Israel to disappear from the planet? And therefore, is God reneging on his promise to bless every family on the earth? And once again, you and I know that God doesn't renege, and we know that Jesus is God's answer to all of our needs and problems. However, these people don't know that. And you can get sideways sometimes with life, as can I, and you may end up wondering, God, where are you? So let's just dive into a couple of texts and see some of these cool things going on. This is right at the beginning of the very first chapter. On the seventh day... And that's the seventh day of a big, huge party. It's actually the 187th day of a big, 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 huge party. Xerxes is showing off because he wants all the people in the kingdom of Persia to sign up to go with him because he wants to fight the Greeks. And he's just buying them with party. They just party, party, party. This is day 187. But it's the seventh day when every single human being in the country was invited. When King Xerxes was high in spirits, Can you see what it says next? From wine. The boy was drunk, absolutely drunk. He's been on a 187-day bender. Uh, He's just not all that smart of a guy. He commanded the seven eunuchs. Now, this is in church, but we're talking about eunuchs, online and in person. What are eunuchs for? They're protecting the harem. Kings have harems. harem is going to show up in just a minute. Now, I'm going to say the names. Seven eunuchs who served him. Mahuman, Bitha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abag- Abagtha, Zether, and Karkas. Those were fun names to say. You'd like to learn how to say them too, wouldn't you? Okay, he says to his eunuchs, bring me Queen Vashti. Now, this guy is not bright because look what he's going to ask. Wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people's and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, here's a drunk guy wanting to get his unbelievably lovely wife to come parade herself around a bunch of other drunk guys. He's stupid, and he's drunk, and all of this decision-making, I would call it an alcohol-related incident, ARI. That's what's happening here. He just has absolutely lost it. All he cares about is showing off and letting everybody see how wealthy he was with the big party and how he could win their loyalty so they'd go give their lives to fight the Greeks. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, look at Vashti. She refused to come. That's what we call palace intrigue. Uh Uh-huh, that's rebellion. The king became furious and burned with anger. Well, it was dumb, but he couldn't see that, and he was drunk, and you tend to lose your temper a little more when you're drunk probably, and so that's what's going on here. Just a little dive in to see the, the fascination with this book, remembering that this king has in his country these exiled people. They haven't shown up yet. So, so far we've met Vashti, who won't come anywhere near the king's men, who are all drunk, and we've met this drunk king. Fast forward. What happens next is this. The king says, "Ditcher." he dumps her. The king dumps Vashti and he says to his people, gather me together six or 800 of the most beautiful young women in the whole country and I'm going to pick one. So that's what happens. Now look what happens in chapter uh, 2 verse 17. We're going to meet the central character. Now the king was attracted out of this huge harem of young women. The king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. Esther is a Jewish person. She's a part of the minority, but she hid her identity. You with me? No one knows that she's a Jew. The king doesn't know she's a Jew. So it means that they had they had they wore the same clothes and ate the same food the Jews did as the non-Jews. Esther is more than uh, attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So look at what he does. This king, he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Okay, so just reminding you, King Xerxes or King Ashforosh, Queen Vashti, she's out, divorced and no longer queen. He's looking for a new queen. He gathers six or seven hundred young women. He picks one. Her name is Esther. He doesn't know it, and Esther doesn't tell anybody, but she is a Jewish person. That's one, two, three characters. Here comes Mordecai next. The next, the next text that we're going to see still in chapter 2. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bethana and Teresh, two more fun names to say, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to, a, and a conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai, he's Esther's uncle, and he knows that Esther has been chosen by the king, and he's the one that said, don't tell them we're Jews. And he's hiding his identity and Esther is hiding hers. And there Mordecai is checking on her every day. He's out by the gate to the king's palace. And he hears these two guards planning to assassinate the king. But Mordecai finds out about the plot. He tells his niece, Queen Esther. Now watch what happens next. She in turn reported it to the king. Giving credit to Mordecai. So this story just keeps getting better and better and better. Still no mention of God. And still all these Jewish people wondering what's going to happen to them in their life. And not sensing God is, is in any way involved. They're still captive hundreds of miles away from their home. And when the report was investigated and found out to be true, here's my, one of my favorite parts of the whole story. You ready? Because I love gore. Watch this. The two officials were impaled on poles. Now see, in those days, don't, don't think this is made up. This is not made up. You know what you did to your enemy? You cut their head off. You might put their head on a stake. You might put their whole body on a stake. And you made sure it was public so people could see it. These two guys were plotting to assassinate the king of Persia. The king finds out. Esther tells him. Esther gives her uncle Mordecai the credit, still hiding her identity as a Jewish person and not and hiding Mordecai's. The king goes, I know what to do with this. Bam. And impales them and puts them out there on the street so people can see these dead guys who plotted to assassinate the king. And look what this, this last little interesting little detail. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So kings want people taking notes. This is sort of like him writing his uh, memoirs, right? So King Xerxes then, just as leaders today write memoirs, there they were. And he makes sure it gets written down. So here we have Jewish people living in exile and they're in a big city. They've assimilated in terms of clothing and food so that you can't tell unless they reveal themselves. you got these two Jewish people, Mordecai and Esther, and they're right in the middle of the king's business, and yet God seems to be doing nothing to rescue these people and give them their home back. What's going to happen to them? They don't know. What I've already teased you up on a little bit is the fifth person in the story, Haman. He becomes the chief of staff, the commander-in-chief, the vice president, second in command in persia only to xerxes the king and you're going to have to hear more about this next week but haman is going to get sideways and decide to kill all the jews that's next will god allow that to happen is god going to let his people be annihilated and therefore the family he was going to build goes out of existence and we don't get a chance to get the blessing of, that goes to the whole planet for every family That's that's what's happening here. That's what's at risk. And I thought it might be worthwhile to talk about my own personal sense of exile in my life. And I'm going to get some exile story here about me. I'm inviting you to think about how you might be a person who has experienced this wonder. God, did you quit? Are you absent? Are you going to keep your promise? Am I still your person? So... The subtext also is God is often at work and we have no idea what's going on. God is doing things, and the, that's, that's what we're saying here. Are we his people? And the word we used was providence. So this is a fancy theological word, and up it comes on the screen, this word providence. And what it means is this. God is in sovereignty is another word that you could use there. God governs everything. I'm just going to plot that out for you. What we're saying as followers of Jesus is that we believe that God is provident, that God governs everything. These Jewish people who are in exile, they believed that God was provident, but there was was a growing body of evidence that God had had forgotten them. But God is provident. God is sovereign. God governs everything. And you and I can find a million ways to go, wait a minute. If God is governing everything, where was he? in Texas on May 24th just one example where was he when Leopold II murdered hundreds of thousands of people in the Congo in the 1860s and on and on we can go with ways that we can say wait a minute it's so messed up so the thing that the thing that we have to say is God has honored also our choice. Providence. God governs everything. God promised and keeps them. God says, I'm promising to make a big family, and through that family, bless the whole earth. I'm, I'm at work. I keep my promises. And also, I'm honoring your choices, you and I. And this doesn't solve the problem for us about Texas or Leopold II or Hitler or any other heinous evil or just a grotesque thing that happened down the street in your neighborhood last week, or whatever it is, or something horrendous and terrible and difficult in your own personal life. It doesn't make those things go away, but God honors our choices. He doesn't overrule us and stomp on us. Some people have called that freedom of our will. God lets us make choices, and sometimes we do stupid things. sees the king, stupid things. And God's going to let us live with the consequences. Here's what I would say. We we don't have an answer, Jesus followers, for why all this evil stuff happens. Not a full answer. But we do sit down on top of the providence of God, believing God is governing. We do believe that God keeps his promises. We know that all of that's true because of Jesus. And here's the other thing you need to know. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. The shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So, we don't have a full answer for how this evil stuff happens. We know that God is good, and Jesus puts his arm around you and around me, and he has compassion for us. So, that doesn't make the evil go away, but he's right in the middle of it, not running from it. And we know the end game. We know that when God finishes and culminates and consummates history, there'll be no more evil. Death is defeated on the cross. We know that we have a place and all of God's people who are followers of Jesus have a place in God's covenant promise that goes forever and eternity. Those things are all happening at the same time. So we're stuck with not having a complete answer of why this evil gets perpetrated against on these Jewish people or any other evil you want to pick in the history of the world that you know about. But Jesus is compassionate and Jesus died and resurrected and that's the final answer that we can depend on. So there we are. In my life, a little bit of exile. I was, I'm the second out of five kids. I have an older brother, two younger brothers, and the baby of the five of us is a sister. There's eight years between us. When I finished the first grade, my siblings and my mom and I got in a car to drive from northern Alabama, where we lived, to St. Augustine, Florida, where my mom's family was. And I said to my mom, where's daddy? And she said back to me, He's drunk and I, I'm i remembering this. I don't know. I was seven. I just had my birthday, and I, I don't know that that's exactly what took place. That's what I feel inside, right? He's drunk, and I, saw, I don't know what happened. I, got, I think I was crying, and we stopped, and somehow I called him. I said, Daddy, Mommy says you're drunk, and he said back to me, no, I'm not drunk. I'm sick. Well, he was both, obviously, so I'm in tears, and I don't know, we go to St. Augustine from northern Alabama in those days it took two days to get there and we had a summer vacation in St. Augustine and my dad's gone. And he he slipped into a shadowy life of alcohol. And he simply didn't spend any time with us. Very little. He spent very little time with us. And there was and there was no family therapy. There was no processing it. There was no counseling. We just sort of, we didn't talk about it. We just kept going. And here's what was going on with me, however. Exile. I felt out there and alone. That's what was going on inside of me. Now, it took me a long time to figure out that's what I was feeling, but I did finally figure it out by the grace of God. That's what I felt inside. Oh, yeah, exile. And then I can look back and see my life and see that 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 made a big difference in who I am, and I I had to get healed of it. More about that, in two weeks not a whole lot more today alcohol consumption darkness lostness a little bit of ray of hope however I vague memory in the house that we lived in when when my dad and mom split up she chased him I remember being outside and we had a tree with a basketball goal on it and just a dirt court and he sat me on his knee and said I'm going to get back together again with your mother You'll just have to come back and see if that happened or not. Where are you, God? Am I still your person? Am I still a part of what you're doing? That was the question I didn't even know I was asking, but I was. I was asking it. That's, that was a part of how I, I felt lost and alone. And I'm a, I'm a, a terminal extrovert <laughs> So, I mean, I wasn't alone literally, but I felt alone. See, what happens is on the cross, this question, God, did you forget your promises? God, have you reneged on us? Did you bail? See, Jesus reverses it. There's a reversal coming in the book of Esther. And I want you to want to know about it. I want you to come back and hear about it. Next week, you're going to get more about the genocidal plot. Ah, yeah, it's good stuff. But what we can say every single time we're in this room and what we know is true is that God reversed everything that's evil and wrong. He reversed anything that hurt me. He reversed sin and death. And that's the meaning of the cross. And we even have this verse in the book of Philippians. Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi. It's a verse we sometimes write on our faces. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ten words. And what that means is this. When God is conspicuously absent, when I'm getting my teeth kicked in, when it's really hard, when I am in exile, I can still trust because that cross is empty that Jesus Christ is alive and God is present. the the realm which is the God realm is still here even though I can't see it or feel it or don't experience it very very clearly. And so the paradox for you and for me, the paradox is this. We're saying that God is omnipotently, sovereignly, providentially present even when he appears to be absent. That's what we're saying in faith. That's what we're saying how we're going to live. And the reason we can say that, friends, Esther and Mordecai don't know this yet, but we know it. We can say it because we're here because of Jesus. We can say it because we know that there was a person, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, and he lived and he was executed. And at that execution, all this evil that makes no sense to us, the evil before Jesus, during Jesus, and after, all of it gets paid for on that cross, and there is new life. The God realm is now broken out. You can call it supernatural maybe. Call it whatever you want. But God is present and real in our world. And we believe that even when it's really hard to see it. And another way that I think that this is all making sense for you and me is that for most of us, we're just ordinary people and we have everyday lives. And so what I'm saying is that God is present and at work in ordinary people, which is who we are. There are one or two of you who are extraordinary. Extraordinary. Elizabeth apparently is extraordinary. I would agree with Julianne, by the way, about what she said. But most of us are just ordinary people, and we have ordinary everyday lives, and yet God is present. And sometimes it's really hard to even want to sense God because things are just ugly. But God is present, and God is there. And so we have a video of one of us. He's in the room now, a video just talking about his life, and how he doesn't know it, but what I'm doing is folding in his little video to this idea that God is at present and working on our lives in ordinary ways, in ordinary day-in-and-day-out life. His name is Ned Hance. He's, Ned Hance. He's sitting right over here, and he's gonna—he's—we got him on video to talk about how he got bushwhacked into noticing God a little bit more.
6: Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Ned Hance, and I'd like to take a couple minutes uh, to tell you all about myself, and my family, and and how we we got involved with first press and how recently we've we've really been able to grow our faith and um right now as we're studying the book of esther i think our story is a very neat one uh, in the sense that it happened organically one day i was having a phone call with kathy on another matter and um at the end of the call she says hey ned could you by chance uh help set up at rights and So unbeknownst to my wife, I had signed up uh, to be at Wright's on Sunday mornings between 8.15 to 8.30. And um, shout out to David, Karen, and Gant Rohrbeck, my team leader. We were a great team and had a blast. But as we continued to go to Wright's and as we continued to get involved with the church, um, I started to see my relationship with my wife growing to a place that it had never been before. And I... I found ourselves, you know, Sunday nights discussing Fitz's sermons, and and sometimes into the week discussing it more and more, and how it played into our lives. And and then we got to a point where where Saturdays, my daughter, three years old, would come and ask, "Are we going to church tomorrow?" And that's when I I just I knew something something powerful had happened in our lives, and I, I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but I knew it felt right. And for myself, I, I think at the end of the day without knowing exactly what was happening there we were we were finding a piece to our puzzle that we had not known was there and it was really neat to be welcomed back to a church like first Pres with open arms from each of you and i'm i'm very very thankful for all of you and uh as i've gotten to know more of you um especially over the last year it's been a very special thing and and as individuals have taken my family on and and helped us in so many ways that we had never seen possible before. It has been a very special thing, and I'm very, very thankful for that. And um, at the end of the day, I think we just we look forward to growing with the church as a family, as all of us build this church from the ground up. And so with that, sky's the limit. And everybody, let's go have a wonderful day. And again, thank you for accepting my family and being there when maybe you didn't realize you were. Have a great day.
5: So if you can't see online, I'm pointing at Kathy. If she calls you, look out. <laughs> so God is a promise keeper. God is at work. That's the truth. I have, I have homework for you. You ready? I've divided the, all, in all humanity into three camps. You ready? Here we go you got to decide which camp you're in, online or in the room. Camp A, that's people who follow Jesus. Camp B, people who are seeking God, and the promise is God. if you're seeking God sincerely, if you're in Camp B, God will honor that, and God will, God will go get you. And then there's Camp C, people who aren't seeking God. So here's the homework assignment. If you are a Camp C person, I want you to hear me. I love you. You're so welcome here because we come as we are at First press. But let me just suggest to you, there's no, there's no advantage to being in Camp C. So here's what I want to suggest to you. There's no downside. Pull up the stakes of Camp C and go and plop your stakes, put your picture your in Camp B. Start seeking. I'm inviting you, if you're not seeking God, to seek God. Go to Camp B. Camp B people. I have an assignment for you. If you're seeking God and you're just not sure, this is what I want you to do. I want you to look around in your life and find yourself a Camp A person. They're there, and I want you to do this. I want you to reach out to them, and I want you to say, Look, I'm in a Camp B person. I'm seeking God, and I, I think you, you seem to be a person who seems to have found a relationship with Jesus. Just I want to talk about what's going on with me. Will you listen? Do that, Camp B person. Camp A person. This is what I want you to do. I want you to look around and see who's in Camp B or Camp C in your life. And if somebody in Camp B gets to you before you get a chance, then say, thank you, God, because God is at work in ways that we don't know about. But find somebody who's in Camp B and ask them to tell you their story and listen. Does that make sense? Good. Which camp are you in? You have a simple assignment. And it's very relational. And I promise you that God will honor it because God is sovereign. God is providential. God is at work. God keeps his promises even when we can't sense his presence. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to do something a little unique right now in just a second. Gracious God, we thank you that you're at work. We thank you that we can sense it in so many ways. We thank you for Ned talking about how you were at work in his life without him knowing it, and now he looks back and he can see it. And gracious God, we're excited now to be able to do what we're about to do, which is to honor you in yet another way, knowing that you're at work in our family through the lives of the people who are leading our work with teenagers. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do real quick, my friends, is introduce our leadership team, who are the folks who are working with teenagers, and Kathy's going to introduce them, as and they're going to bring them up, and we're going to pray for them, and, yes. that's, and God is at work, and God is at work with and through and in our lives and teenagers.
2: Well, what we want you to know is that we have a full search going on right now for our next student ministry director. Potential candidates are beginning to emerge, and a few preliminary conversations have already taken place, so keep praying. This morning, we have the privilege of calling forward Jane Greaves, Dan Fields, and I don't know if, yep, there he is, J.T. Hill. Y'all come on up. These three individuals said yes to an invitation to lead and love teenagers this summer. If Y'all will stand right here. Jane is, uh, teaches second grade at St. Mary's Episcopal Day School. She's involved in one of our life groups here at First Pres, and she and her husband, Sam, have hosted several young adult mixers already. Both Dan and J.T. grew up in the church, and they were involved in our student ministry as teenagers. Now they've said yes to loving teenagers. J.T. is a rising junior at Clemson University. Dan is a rising sophomore at the University of Florida. So we get the privilege of celebrating not only their commitment to be relentless in reaching every teenager in our church and their friends with the love of Jesus, they're leading loop for middle schoolers on Sunday mornings, they, are, they have an event planned for middle schoolers this week. Of a pizza and pool party, uh, they have at Soma JT's house this Tuesday at night. JT's house not that t- I would sell it. Yes, not no, and you would right. And we certainly would love some assistance with drinks and other things. And then, um, Soma Camp for high school and middle schoolers, and more plans for high school teenagers as well. We're so excited. So now we want to invite y'all to come forward and help lay hands on them. In the early church, the people would come and lay hands as a sign of support and sending. We're sending them into the adolescent culture with prayer. And if you can't get to them and put a hand on them, put a hand on someone near them. How about that? So come on up if you would like to join us as we pray and send them. Anyone can start praying and I will close. I love it. The whole church is coming on up, you guys. This is good stuff.
5: Gracious God, we thank you. There's no such thing as a teenager who you don't know, and you are promise-keeping God, and you are sovereignly, providentially at work in the lives of these folks as they extend relationally into the world of teenagers and teenagers that don't know you're coming. Gracious God, that's what we're excited about, that they have no idea that you're at work in their lives and and at work in our lives and in these leaders' lives. Thank you, gracious God, that you love us, you keep your promises, you love these three, and you love the people they're going to attract into a relationship with you.
6: Bless them, God, they will be able to sense you are with them every step, and God, that they are supported and prayed for by us uh, as they're going forward. And we are so grateful for their uh, willingness to say yes to this
5: opportunity.
2: Father, our hearts are so full of gratitude for each of these friends before us serving you so sacrificially already, Lord. They both, all three of them, have jobs in our community, and yet they're doing this too because of their love for you, because of their love for teenagers. Oh, Lord, teenagers need to be loved and cared for and led and nurtured and inspired by courageous men and women who love you. So, Lord, we just ask that you would grant them favor as they step into middle school and high school life, We pray that amazing relationships are formed that might last a lifetime. Relationships that point to you, Jesus. Relationships that maybe even help a teenager begin a relationship with you, Jesus. For such a time as this, you have called these three, and we are so grateful. In Christ's name we pray, as all God's people say, amen. Amen.
5: Yo, friends, you're free to you're free to leave as the band re- uh, reprises a little bit of Graves in the Gardens. So they're gonna play and sing, and we're gonna we're gonna meander. Stuff, ah, really? Yeah, yeah. You got ditched. Yeah. Let's talk about. It.